We spent a lot of time trying to clarify what Torah is, what it includes, what it contains, what is the history. And now I want to approach a very central, important question. That is the question of authorship. We have a Torah. We have a written Torah. We have an oral Torah. We have all these detailed laws. And the major question that we have to ponder is who does it come from? Who is the author? Where does the Torah emanate from? Now, we believe that it comes from God. The Torah is the word of God. We don't believe it comes from Moshe. Moshe has a very important role to play in the transmission of the Torah because he is the Almighty's right-hand man, so to speak. He's the Almighty's emissary. He's the Almighty's mouthpiece. He was the Almighty's spokesman to bring the Torah down to us. But we believe that the written Torah and the oral Torah are both the word of God. The written Torah is the precise words of God, and Moshe is just the scribe and the stenographer. He's the typist. He's the one who writes it down. But ultimately, every word there comes from the Almighty. Similarly, with the oral Torah, we believe the oral Torah, which is the application, the principles, like we spoke about the oral Torah at great length. The the oral Torah also, we believe, comes from God. And in fact... People have this central idea a little bit wrong sometimes, and that is that we claim that it comes from Moshe. No. The Talmud says quite clearly that if someone denies the divinity of the Torah, they are disenfranchised for the Jewish people, and they lose their portion, Omaba. And if someone says that the whole Torah is authored by Moshe, or even that the whole Torah is authored by God, but this one verse is authored by Moshe, they too are already included in that group of people who are divested from the Jewish people, who are excommunicated, who don't have a portion in the world to come. So we've been discussing the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam. The Rambam tells us these are the bedrocks of Jewish faith, of Jewish religion. And we're up to number eight, which is the divinity of the Torah. And I think that the divinity of Torah, it needs external or logical proofs because all 13 of these principles are substantiated by the Torah, and therefore this idea that the Torah is divine is the glue that keeps all the 13 principles of faith in place. It keeps them together. Thus, a precondition for Torah and for the principles of the Torah is to believe that the Torah, which is the source book, so to speak, of these 13 principles, is indeed divine. Now, this is a very important subject, and there are all kinds of consequences for the question of the divinity of the Torah. If the Torah is divine, then its laws are obligatory. Its laws are immutable. Its laws are mandatory whether we like it or not. It comes from God after all. We don't have a say to say we can opt out of the laws of the country. We can't say, you know what? These laws don't really work for me. I don't connect to them. I'm not emotionally invested in the laws of the country because, after all, these are the laws, take it or leave it. Similarly, if the laws of the Torah come from God, they too are immutable whether we like it or not. If we don't particularly connect to a certain mitzvah, it doesn't matter. It comes from God. It's not about you liking it, loving it, connecting to it emotionally. None of that matters if the Torah originates from God. I think another important consequence of the divinity of the Torah is the fact that it gives us a certain degree of, of serenity and tranquility and peace of mind 
knowing that we are not following a hoax. Our whole life is not based upon some sort of fraudulent idea. The Torah indeed is true. Now, if it is a hoax, if it is a fabrication, there are consequences of that as well. It means that all of the Torah we're studying and all the mitzvahs that we're doing and all the Shabbos we're observing and all the tefillin we're donning, everything we're doing is a waste of time. And we've all been duped. And it's not just us who have been duped. It's all the brilliant Jews of our history. The Rambam has been duped. The Ramchal has been duped. Rabbi Akiva has been duped. Rashi's been duped. The Gona Vilna, the Baal Shem Tov, the Arizal, they've all been duped to fall for a hoax. Of course, the consequences of this question are quite severe indeed. But besides for this subject having lots of consequences, I think it's a very touchy subject because there's a lot at stake. We all have our relationship with Torah and we get defensive when that is questioned. We have what's called confirmation bias where we like to accept the things that confirm our existing perspective of the world and the things that challenge it are going to be resisted. That's the idea of what we call dissonance. We have, we have dissonance. There's going to be an uneasiness with things that are likely to question our biases and our assumptions. We all have built-in biases, and it's quite painful to try to critically reassess our life and our priorities. And therefore, the main challenge that we're going to have as we embark on this quest to try to analyze and assess the rest of the Torah is the challenge of trying to maintain the discussion faithfully and truthfully and logically without kind of the interference of our existing biases. Now, the way I want to set out to discuss this subject is I want to simplify it. I want to frame it as follows. And this, I think it sounds obvious, but it's really not obvious in most people's minds, in my opinion. And that is, I think that the way to have a helpful, productive discussion is to frame the question that the truth is one of these two options. Either the Torah is true or it's a hoax. There's really nothing in the middle. And this is going to be quite constricting because if there's only two options, there's very little wiggle room to say, well, it's true, but it's either true, the way we claim it is, it comes from God, the word of God, it's obligatory, mandatory, it's true the way it is, the way it's been described, the way it's been traditionally assumed by our people for millennia. Either that's true or that's not true. And if it's not true, then it's a hoax. And I think this is a helpful framing because we like the murkiness, the opacity of uncertainty because that doesn't challenge us, doesn't create crises. But I think that if we have this simple framing, it's true or it's not true, and let's see what we could explore what we could discover from the evidence to see which one of those options are true. I think that's a very helpful and simple way to frame the subject. Okay, so the plan today is to cover five different points. Number one, I want to kind of get a general point out there to soften the subject. And then we're going to talk about the miracles of the Torah. And then we're going to talk about the predictions of the Torah. And then we're going to talk about unique information 
that the Torah had that it shouldn't really know at that time unless it was authored by God. And finally, I want to end off the discussion with questions that the heretic must address if they want to engage with this subject faithfully. So let's start with something easy. Like I said, something to soften the discussion, something we could all agree upon. And that is, if you believe in God, if you accept the basic premise, the world didn't create itself, there is some sort of higher intelligence, higher power that created the world. Necessarily, you believe that the world has purpose. There must be a reason why the Almighty the creator, the intelligent designer, God created what he created. That's logical. And therefore, you should be expecting some form of Torah to be revealed, some sort of revelation where the creator's purpose will be outlined. Once you accept that the world has a creator, You should be on the lookout for some sort of instruction manual, some sort of guidebook, how to use the world, how to achieve the world's purpose. Now, of course, this does not prove that the Torah is that corpus. Maybe it's the Quran or some other book or some other doctrine. But I think a basic idea is that the concept of Torah and the concept of God really should come together. Namely, if there is an intelligent creator, then there is a purpose. And therefore, once you accept God, you should be looking for something like Torah as a result. Now, of course, we believe that, of course, the mind created the world. And he gave us the Torah, which is the manual, the user guide, to use the world and to achieve the world's purpose. But I think an easy way to start the subject, is that that is something to be expected. If you don't think the world was an accident, if you think there is a creator, then there is purpose, and therefore there should be something like Torah, either Torah or something like it, something that you would anticipate. Now, we believe that God created the world and gave us Torah, and thus Sinai, the revelation at Sinai where we got the Torah, is like a completion of Genesis. The world was not perfect, was not complete until the purpose of the world was outlined. Genesis was not done until the Almighty gave us the Torah at Sinai. And in fact, this is a running motif in Jewish philosophy that Sinai is the completion, it's the exclamation point, so to speak, of Genesis. In fact, the Mishnah tells us that the world was created with 10 utterances, and that relates or that mirrors other batches of 10, namely the 10 tests of Abraham, the 10 plagues of Egypt, and of course, the 10 commandments at Sinai. Revelations come in batches of 10. Sinai is a completion of Genesis. So I think that's a a very important point to lay out at the beginning, that the concept of God and the concept of Torah are not disjointed and unrelated. They are united. They are connected. One almost necessitates something like the other. Point number one. 
Point number two, I want to talk about the miracles of the Torah. If the miracles of the Torah are true, well, that means that the force operating those miracles, that originates from a place above, so to speak, the rules of nature, from a place that controls the rules of nature, i.e. what we call God. The concept of a miracle is a disruption in the rules of the world. The Almighty, who created the world, still has the keys to do things that are contra, that are against the rules of nature. He instituted the rules of nature, but he still reserved the right to disrupt them, to make what we call miracles at will. And thus, if we see evidence of miracles, of things that are against nature, and they substantiate the Torah, ergo we could prove that the Torah comes from God. Now, the most important miracle of the Torah is the sign of revelation. Of course, this is a subject that we've spoken about extensively in the past, but I want to quickly rehash the points because this is our source for the divinity of the Torah. There are lots of proofs, but the Torah's own proof, so to speak, is Sinai. And I want to read you a verse or a series of verses from chapter 4 of Deuteronomy. And this is, of course, Moshe's last will and testament to the Jewish people. Only beware for yourself, and greatly beware for your soul, lest you forget the things that your eyes have beheld, and lest you remove them from your heart all the days of your life, and make them known to your children and your children's children. The day that you stood before Hashem your God at Choref, which is another name of Sinai, when Hashem said to me, gather the people to me, and I shall let them hear my words, so that they shall learn to fear me all the days of their lives, and they shall teach their children. So you approached and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain was burning with a fire up to the heart of heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick cloud. Hashem spoke to you from amidst the fire. You were hearing the sound of words, but you were not seeing a likeness, only a sound. He told you of his covenant that he commanded you to observe the Ten Commandments, the Ten Declarations, and he inscribed them on two stone tablets. So here the Torah is telling us that we must fastidiously and meticulously maintain the memory of the sign of revelation when God spoke to us. I want to point out that unlike the movie, you know, the book is quite clear that the sign of revelation was a prophecy from God to the people and not just to Moses alone. It's evident in the words. Hashem spoke to you, Moshe tells the nation, from the midst of the fire. And the people who witnessed the event are the people that Moshe is speaking to. And they're the same people that get the book, i.e. the Torah, that delineates this or that describes this experience. And the purpose of it, we read, is so that we should fear God for the rest of our lives and we should obey the Torah. And we must never forget it. And there's a very famous Ramban here where he tells us that there is a positive commandment to remember and perpetuate the memory of Sinai. And there's also a negative commandment to never forget it because the Sinai experience substantiates all the laws. The Torah gives us all these laws. How do we know it's true? How do we know it's legit? Maybe it was made up. How do we know? Well, we had this founding event, the sign of revelation, 
And that substantiates all of Torah, and therefore it's imperative for us to maintain that memory. If the Torah came to us from Moshe, well, Moshe's a great guy, he's a great prophet, but so what? That could be undone. That's not permanent. That's not eternal. That's not from God. That's not the handiwork, the product of God. And therefore, if another prophet comes, another charismatic fellow who also does miracles, well, maybe we could discard the role, the teachings of Moshe in favor of the new prophet. But because the Torah came in this fashion, with national revelation and national prophecy, we unless we have something which is on the same scale, unless we have a second national revelation, we can never undo the revelation of Moses. And finally, the clincher. And he points out, he says, well, that's a long time ago. That is an antiquity. So how do we know today? And he says, we don't testify falsely to our sons and our children. And we don't perpetuate to them things that are untrue, things that are futile. And therefore, if our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents have all testified to the sign of revelation, we can know it is true. There's a very important point over here. You know, people could say, wait a minute, what about Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy? Parents lie to their kids all the time. It's not his point. His point is that the whole concept of the past, the whole concept of history, that there's some sort of reliability to know what happened in the past, the reason why it is reliable is because there's a mechanism that prevents hoaxes from gaining legs and being perpetuated. The only way for a historical untruth to be perpetuated is if you have a collusion amongst an entire generation of people. And it's impossible, says the Ramban, to coordinate a whole generation of people to transmit total lies and total fabrications to the next generation. So an example of this phenomenon is, you know, all of us here believe that Napoleon existed and he conquered much of Europe. We all believe that to be true. Maybe we don't know the details, we didn't read up so much about it, but that idea that there existed a person named Napoleon Bonaparte who was the emperor of France and after the French Revolution, which existed in the 1790s, he conquered much of Europe and then he got to Russia and that's where it ended. But we believe that. But I was born in 1986 and... I don't imagine anyone here was born before, I don't know, 1900, most likely not, even all the listeners in the podcast. And of course, we have a great contingency of senior citizen listeners that we value a lot, but no one, I would imagine, was born before 1900. So how do we know what happened in the early 1800s? Maybe it's a lie. Maybe it didn't happen. None of us witnessed it. So how do we know it's true? What about going back thousands of years? Alexander the Great, did he exist? Did he conquer much of the own world? Did George Washington exist? Did he cross the Delaware? Did he preside over the Constitutional Convention of 1787? Did those things even exist? How do we know? How do we know for sure? So what the Rabban is telling us is there's a certain mechanism that prevents such falsities from being perpetuated. You cannot make this up and perpetuate the next generation. The only way for George Washington to not have existed 
And for us to be under the impression that he did exist is if the whole generation colluded to make it up. And that's not possible. So we can know for sure Napoleon Bonaparte existed, Washington, Alexander, all of these people existed. And we could also know for sure that Sinai existed as well because it's impossible to falsify. And I want to say something that will make you perhaps a bit uncomfortable. And that is that we know that there's almost nothing that is as maddening and infuriating as Holocaust deniers. You know, I'm someone, four of my grandparents, all four of them are Holocaust survivors. And Chaya's grandparents, four grandparents, are also Holocaust survivors. And it's so maddening and upsetting and infuriating when people question that. But I'm going to ask a question. How indeed do we know that the Holocaust happened? Like I said, born in the 1980s. It's 40 years after the Holocaust happened. How do I know? The answer is this Ramban. The answer is that there's a mechanism that tells us that we could rely that past history happened because there's testimonies of people and the testimony carries weight. And people don't perpetuate falsehoods because you can't get entire generations of people to perpetuate falsehoods. And the more people that testify to an event, the more credibility that claim has. And here's the point that's going to make you uncomfortable. There are more people who testify to the reliability of Sinai than to the Holocaust. There are more witnesses, there's more testimony, there's more credibility that Sinai happened than the Holocaust happened. A single event witnessed by millions of people concurrently and simultaneously, and they perpetuated that to their children. We believe that the people who deny the Holocaust, in order to do that, you have to be evil or stupid, most likely both, to deny it. But it is, I think, again, it's an uncomfortable point, and I'm acknowledging that. It is interesting that Sinai deniers did not exist until recently. In antiquity, there is no one who questioned it. This was something that was accepted by all. It wasn't denied by anyone. There's no account, there's no documentation, there's no record of anyone saying it never happened. Millions of people witnessed prophecy together with Moshe at the foot of the mountain, lived to tell the tale, and perpetuate to their children. And it's recorded in the book that they themselves received, and the book that incorporates all the laws that they began to abide by. So I think it's it's very noteworthy, like this Ramban tells us, that this event is the bedrock and the foundational principle of our people. Now, it's also interesting, later on in this same chapter of Deuteronomy, Moshe tells the nation that not only is this Sinai experience such a transcendental, transformative event in our history, but Moshe is making the claim that no other nation will have a similar claim. There will never be a nation or a religion that will claim national revelation. If it's a hoax, then you'd imagine there'd be other people that could pull off the hoax that we did. 
But the Torah says this claim will never be replicated. Even the claim will not gain any ground, any, any ledge to it. And the answer is, again, this Ramban. There's no way to make up such a story, just like it's impossible for us to make up some reality about Napoleon that Napoleon never existed. But let's make up a story. Let's all get together, the whole world, to get together and make up a story, make up this, this really interesting and dynamic and short and complicated Rush, uh, French guy who conquered the whole world. We'll just make up the story. Wouldn't that be cool? Let's all get together and do that. You can't. You can't get millions of people to buy into your hopes to perpetuate their children. And therefore, the Torah can say with confidence, not only is this the only time in history that it happened, but no other nation will be able to even make such a claim because the claim itself is impossible unless you get millions of people to collude, which is impossible. So I think this is um, a very important point that the Sinai revelation is our evidence for the divinity of the Torah and therefore we must remember it. We may never forget it. And this is how we prove the divinity of the Torah. And like we said, the claim is in the book. The claim is the book that describes the people themselves who experienced these events. This is not something that happened thousands of years. Oh, thousands of years ago. You don't remember, but Sinai revelation happened. And the book itself is delivered to the very people who witnessed those events. And they begin to abide by the laws of the Torah based upon their conviction that the Torah is real. The outcome is substantial. It's not like, oh, there's a fairy, fairy tale. Let's not even think about it. There's capital law, capital crime, all kinds of uh, a detailed uh, system of law that the nation begins to adopt because they know it's divine. They would never adopt it if they thought it was a fraud or a hoax or a fabrication. So we have this miracle of the sun revelation that is it's unimpeachable, that it proves the divinity of the Torah. But that's not the only miracle that there is in the Torah. Besides the greatest miracle of them all, the Son of Revelation, the Torah is jam-packed with all kinds of miracles witnessed again by millions of people. We have the ten miraculous plagues in Egypt, the death of the firstborn, splitting of the sea into dry, walkable paths for 40 years. What does the nation drink? They drink water that emanates from a rock. They eat manna from heaven. There's piles and piles of fresh meat that also surrounds the camp. They are enveloped by mountain flattening clouds by day. At night, they follow a pillar of fire. For 40 years, their clothes drew with them. The earth opens up and swallows the sinners of the Korach Rebellion. Our nation experienced the most unique and comprehensive miracles ever claimed by any nation. And they're described in detail in the book given to the very people who experienced them. And these people went on to believe in these miracles and in the Torah and diligently obey its laws. And again, if these miracles are true, well, the Torah has been verified. If they're fake, if it never happened, you have to answer the question, well, how did Moses or whoever get the nation to believe them? I did hear that there was a valiant attempt to try to explain away all the miracles of the Exodus. Apparently, on certain tides, the sand at the side of the Nile gets a little brownish-reddish 
And that's what happened. The emotion convinced the nation, oh, it's actually blood. Don't drink from it. Oh, and then a tsunami came and that changed the tide and it split the sea. Then I said, well, what, what, what about the manna? How do you explain manna? So then I thought, okay, checkmate, right? No, it's not checkmate. When the Israelites, they found a certain beetle that is packed with protein and it looks kind of white and that's what they were eating. Of course, it's totally risible because even if you find a beetle that's edible and full of protein, it doesn't mean that you have enough to feed a nation for 40 years, a nation of millions of people. And I'm still waiting to hear how you explain the miracle if you're, again, if you're not willing to consider something divine and supernatural, something above the rules of nature, how do you explain the miracle of drinking water, enough water for an entire nation, drinking water that comes from a rock? How does that happen in a natural, rational way? So we talked about the idea of Torah being expected, the idea to soften the whole subject. We talked about the Sinai miracle and all the other miracles Let's move on now to predictions. The Torah makes a lot of predictions. Some of them are almost harebrained and so unlikely to happen. Not these kind of fuzzy predictions, you know, good things will happen, bad things will happen. Specific predictions that are once in all of history events that indeed we know for sure have already happened. Now the Ramban in his commentary on the song of Ha'azinu. Ha'azinu is the penultimate parsha of the Torah at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this is a prophetic song that lays out Jewish history and the patterns of Jewish history and the past and the present and the future and even the afterlife, so to speak, of our people. And it lays out a certain pattern and the Ramban tells us that this song is so prescient, it's so clairvoyant, that if you just had this song, you would believe that whoever wrote the song is supernatural, has prophecy. And he lays out that the song starts off with the goodness and the kindness that God does for us, and all the miracles they did for us in the wilderness, and that he's going to give us the land, the land of Canaan, from these great nations. But because we have so much good, we're going to rebel against God. And God's going to get angry at us. And he's going to send plagues after us. And there's going to be hunger and wild animals and sword. And then we're going to be scattered throughout the land. So he lays out a certain pattern that has repeated itself again and again throughout history that we repent, we come close to God. God says, okay, I got your back. He gives us all the amazing things that we want, that we need, even stuff that we don't need. And then we get fat, so to speak, in the words of scripture. We get fat and we rebel and we kick against God. And God says, okay, you want to turn it back against me? I'll turn it back against you. And then he allows us to be preyed upon by our enemies. And they come and they attack and they destroy and they scatter and they plunder and they massacre. And we go scatter throughout the land and we're depressed and we're sad and we're despondent and we repent and we come back. And again, this pattern, says the Ramban, has repeated itself again and again throughout history. And this, of course, indicates that the Almighty is going to treat us relative to our behavior. And the Torah, which lays out this certain pattern of treatment, both here in in Deuteronomy and elsewhere in the Torah, it is indeed the product of God because we've seen these predictions play out. 
And the Rabban ends, he says, and he has a very long piece talking about, about Messiah, that it's not contingent on our righteousness. And of course, we're going to still talk about Messiah when we get to the 12th principle, the principle of Messiah. But then he says that we should believe in Messiah just because of this song. This song is so clairvoyant and it talks about Messiah and everything that it's described has already happened besides from Messiah. And therefore, we just had the song. The author of this song is trustworthy and we should believe him. And then he adds, of course, we believe in Messiah because of Moses, not because of this song, so to speak, in isolation, because Moses is a prophet who's been verified, and therefore we believe him because he speaks the word of God. But if we just had this song, that would be sufficient for us to believe because the song is just uncannily accurate. What the Rabban is laying out for us is that there is a certain legitimacy to the idea of us analyzing the predictions of the Torah to see if they indeed bear out and that should give us, again, more credibility and legitimacy that the Torah comes from God who has the ability to determine what happens in history. Now, the Ramban lived in the 13th century. More events that are predicted in the Torah and follow this pattern have already happened since the Ramban passed. But I want to lay out some of the traditions of the Torah and see how they have happened. So, for example, the Torah predicts the history of our people, and it makes a very bold prediction because it makes a prediction that is counterintuitive. It testifies that the nation will remain small in number, will be persecuted and hated by our enemies, we're going to be scattered throughout the land, and we're going to be harassed, and persecuted, but never destroyed. And we're going to reconstitute and return and reestablish hegemony over the land. Now, today we know that this already happened. The nation was in Israel, was in the land of Canaan, and were sent out, and were sent packing. And they came back. And of course, I'm referring to the first time that this happened. Jewish people... Jewish civilization is destroyed by the Babylonians. Babylonians come and send the Jews packing. And the Jews go to all kinds of different lands. And in history, that invariably means the nation will never be coming home. It's happened many, 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 many times throughout history. A nation is sent packing and they disappear. Either they get swallowed up, assimilated in their new home, they get destroyed, but they never come back to their original home. It doesn't happen. There's no other examples like that in history. And then indeed, 70 years later, the Jewish people begin the second commonwealth. They go back and they reestablish a certain degree of hegemony over the land. And then what happens when the Romans come and the Byzantines? Of course, we're condensing hundreds of years of history, but the Jewish people were back in the land and then they're out of the land. And for about 1,800 years or so, there's really not a strong Jewish presence in the land. There's always a few Jews, at least at a minimum, that are living here. But Jews are elsewhere. They're in North Africa. They're in the Middle East, all places in the Middle East, all over Europe. And then they come back. And from all four corners of the world, as described in Scripture, as predicted in the Torah, the nation that was small in number, that's persecuted and harassed, comes back to the land. This is all undeniable to us today. How did the author of the Torah know that and predict that, especially when that's so counterintuitive, 
How does that happen unless the author of the Torah also has the ability to determine that outcome? Another prediction in Leviticus chapter 26, verse 31 and 32, when it describes the Jewish people being booted from the land, the verse says, God will make the land desolate. And the enemies who try to settle the land won't be successful. Our enemies will kick us out of the land and they'll try to establish a homeland there and they won't be able to do it. And again, the Ramban here tells us this is a good tiding that throughout all the exiles, our land will not absorb our enemies. And this is a great proof and a great promise because if you look in the entire civilized world, you don't have a land like the land of Israel, which is such a good land, such a fertile land, such a broad land, such a wonderful land. I always say that the land of Israel is kind of the size of New Jersey, but it has like tropical beaches in a lot and it has steamed uh, in the mountains of Hermon. It's just an amazing land. And yet, says the Ramban, look at a history. There's never been a time where a nation besides for us have established a homeland there. Yes, it's been part of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, the Ottomans, of course. But only we can establish a home here, a land here, a state, if you will, over here, because the Torah makes that prediction. Again, what do we see? The author of the Torah is privy to events in history ahead of time. Now, besides for the general idea to soften the subject that Torah is something we should expect and all the miracles of the Torah and all the predictions of the Torah, the Torah also has, I think, unique information that you would not expect anyone to have. So, for example, we spoke about this in the past. The Torah tells us we've got to wash our hands. Wash our hands. Now we have this pandemic, right? The first thing we're always told is you've got to wash your hands. Keep your hands clean. For millennia, Jews were washing their hands and they had no idea of all the tremendous benefits that they had. The Torah says, wash your hands, you wash your hands. Okay. That's one example. And again, the Torah does not direct this. Say, oh, you wash your hands, you'll be healthy. You'll get rid of all the bacteria or viruses, whatever that's hanging on your hands. But it is, I think, noteworthy. Uh, the calendar, we spoke about the calendar in the past, how the Torah's calendar is 100% precise and it's thousands of years old in a time where the rest of the nations had such convoluted and complicated and ridiculous calendars and were off by months and months every year, uh, like the, the old Roman calendar that would just take 60 days off and wait for the spring equinox to start the calendar again, notor- notoriously inaccurate, full of all kinds of mistakes, and our calendar is still true today. But I want to talk about several bold statements made with respect to kosher and non-kosher animals. In chapter 14 of the book of Devarim, verse 4 through 8, it talks about the kosher animals and the non-kosher animals. It tells us there are 10 kosher animals that we may eat. The ox or the bovine, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. These are the 10 kosher animals. Okay, and then it gives us the rule. The rule is to be a kosher animal, you have to have split hooves and you have to chew your cud. So we have the list of 10 animals 
that fit that criteria, and then we have the criteria split hooves and chewing its cud. Now, the Talmud points out that this is a very bold prediction or a very bold statement because the Torah says this is the criteria and these are the 10 animals that fit that criteria. The Torah is making a statement. There's only 10 animals in the entire world of all the millions of different species that exist. There's only 10 of them that have this specific criteria, split hooves and choose its cut. And Talmud says, the creator is speaking to us. The creator would know how many animals fit that criteria. And here it says the Talmud, the creator is saying, I created all the animals and I'm giving you the Torah. And therefore I have this specific information that no one else would have. I have the information that says that there are 10 animals and no more that fit this criteria. Continues the verse. And then there are several other animals, four other animals that have one and not the other. The verse continues, these are the ones that chew their cud but don't have split hooves. And it tells us the camel, the hare, and the hyrax. These are not kosher. They have one and not the other. And the next verse tells us there is one animal that has the split hooves but doesn't chew its cud, and that's the pig. And again, tells us the Talmud, there's four animals and four animals alone that have one and not the other. There's three that chew their cud but don't have split hooves. And then there is one and one alone that has the split hooves and doesn't chew its cud. Says the Midrash. Amar Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva says, Was Moshe a zoologist? Was Moshe a hunter? How did Moshe know that there's only these four animals that have one of the two necessary components to be kosher? And there's only ten animals that have both. Was Moshe a zoologist? How would he know? Mikan Chuval Omrim ain't This is a response to those who question the veracity and the divinity of the Torah. And the Malmah explains, the wise people of every generation, the scholars, they studied and they investigated all kinds of different animals that are found in all over the place, all places of the world. And they didn't find anyone that has one and not the other besides for the group of the Torah. And again, says Rabbi Kiva, it's, this is very hard for someone who doesn't believe that Torah comes from a divine source. How would you explain this information? Whoever wrote the Torah, how would they know this? And how could they say with such confidence that it's only these four animals that have one of the two necessary criteria and it's only the ten animals that have them both? Now, it's interesting, the Talmud also flexes its muscles, if you will. The oral Torah displays that it too is divine in this source as well. Says the Talmud, this is in the book of Chulin, page 59a. It tells us that kosher animals lack upper incisor teeth 
And therefore, if you find an animal that lacks upper incisor teeth, you know it's kosher. With the exception of a young camel. A young camel doesn't have upper incisor teeth and then it gains them. So again, the Talmud makes this bold claim. And the Talmud itself says, wait a minute, how do you know this? It's a tradition, says the Talmud. It's a tradition. We know for sure that if you find an animal that lacks upper incisor teeth, it's part of the kosher animals for sure. And this is a tradition. Continues the Talmud. If you find an animal and you inspect its flesh at the edge of its tailbone, if it is warp and weft, i.e. if parts of the flesh stretch vertically and part of it stretches horizontally, then you know for sure it's a kosher animal. As long as it's not a young donkey. How do you know that, asked the Talmud? How do you possibly know that? It's a tradition. So the Malam points out that the same place where the written Torah, so to speak, throws out a piece of information, there's no way anyone should know that, unless they're God, says the oral Torah, I'll show you some of what I know, because I too emanate from God, and the tradition too comes from its original source at Sinai, God to Moses, to Joshua, to the elders, etc., etc. And therefore here I will also share with you some of my tradition that only the kosher animals have these following qualifications, namely that they don't have the upper incisor teeth and at the edge of their tailbone, the flesh goes warp and weft, it stretches vertically and horizontally. And again, you really have to ask yourself the question, if the Torah comes from God, this kind of statement makes sense. If the Torah is a fabrication, if the written Torah is a fabrication, if the oral Torah is a hoax, how could you make such a qualification, A, and B, how do they get it right? How do they always guess right? What is up with that? So finally, I want to end off with uh, the questions that I would lay out for the heretic. And again, we don't want to make this accusatory towards anyone, of course. We love all people, and we also love the heretics. But I think this is a series of questions for them to ponder as follows. Number one, we claim national revelation. Why does no other religion have that claim? Why does no other religion claim national revelation? We say because no no, no other religion had it, and you can't make up a claim unless you had it. But if you don't believe that, how do you explain the disparity that we have natural relation or a claim of natural relation and no other religion has. Number two, if Sinai revelation did not happen, how did the Jews become convinced that it did happen? Number three, why are we the only ones who are able to perpetrate such an elaborate hoax? Number four, please describe for me the first Shavuos festival, which is, of course, the festival that remembers the sign of revelation, if the sign of revelation did not happen, explain to me how Shavuos got started. How do you get a nation to believe that their ancestors were slaves in Egypt and were miraculously saved if that did not indeed happen? Describe how the first Passover happened if the Exodus did not happen. How do you get a nation to believe that they ate manna from heaven for 40 years if it didn't happen? How do you get people to believe that they drank water from a rock if it didn't happen? 
how do you get people to believe that they were enveloped by clouds by day and they followed a pillar of fire at night if it didn't happen? How do you get a nation to believe the story of the spilling of the sea or the story of the earth swallowing Korach and his conspirators? I would also add this question. How do you explain the reality of Jewish exceptionalism if we're not the chosen people? Now, what I mean by when I say Jewish exceptionalism is a lot of different things. We're exceptional in that the Jewish people are overrepresented disproportionately in every field of excellence. Right? We say, well, we come from Abraham and we have something special that the Almighty gave us that makes us overperform. But if you don't believe that the Torah is legit, how do you explain that? How do you explain that we're so hated? How do you explain anti-Semitism? We, of course, have an explanation for anti-Semitism because the Torah itself says you will be hated because that's a necessary guardrail to prevent you from losing your special role in history. But how do you explain Jewish exceptionalism on the flip side if you don't believe the Torah is legit? I remember a couple of months ago, Israel made um, uh, some sort of diplomatic relations with an African country called Malawi. I'm like, Malawi? I never heard of that country. What's Malawi? Oh, oh, there's like 11, 12 million people there. Like, how is it possible there is a country that has many more millions of people than the land of Israel does and no one's ever heard of it? Like, what do you know about Bangladesh? It's got like 200 million people, but they don't register as viscerally in the world as the Jews do. There is, I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing because I don't want to get into that whole discussion. Oh, is, is chosen people, is that, is that racist? Is that, uh, we supremacist? Of course, it's not racist because any race can join. It's not supremacist because any person could join. The way we believe, of course, in the concept of conversion. But how do you explain the Jewish exceptionalism if we are not exceptional in the way the Torah describes us? How did the author of the Torah know that only 10 animals have the two kosher symbols and only four animals have one but not the other? How do the sages of the Talmud come up with this idea that uh, the upper incisors are missing in kosher animals and the flesh on the tailbone is warp and weft? How did they come up with that if they don't have some sort of direct link to heaven? How did the sages of the Talmud at a time where calendars were notoriously inaccurate, how did they come up or how did they know the exact length of a lunar month? These are some serious questions. And again, they're reasonable questions. They're based upon logic, based upon things that we know, based upon things that we could witness, based upon verses in the Torah that we could read. How do you explain it? if the Torah is not legit. Now, is all of this persuasive? I don't know. I don't know if it's persuasive. In fact, when Rabbi Akiva says, this is proof for Torah, it's not what he says. He says, this is a response to the heretics. This is a response to the critics. I wonder if anything that we talked about is, is persuasive for someone who doesn't want to believe. I don't know the answer to that question. Like I said, everyone has biases. I have my biases. I was raised with the understanding that the Torah is legit. The Torah is divine. The Torah is historical. Everything is true. 
Everything's written by God. Moshe's playing an important role, but it's all the product of God. I believe we study the Talmud, we study the Mishnah. You're trying to figure out what's the will of God. And the same creator of heaven and earth is the creator of Torah. That's what I believe. That's my bias. I'm letting everyone know that, and I'm sure everyone already knew that going in. To me, this is very compelling. These questions are, are, are very, they're very logical, they're very reasonable, it makes lots of sense. The proof is impressive. The fact that it's unique, it's impressive. The fact that predictions have all happened, it's very impressive. And I, I, I don't know if someone who is a real heretic or a real critic, shall we say, or maybe call them agnostic, if they'll find this compelling. I suspect that there's still more angles to approach this question with. And next time we talk about the subject, I'm going to try to present a very different approach towards the whole subject, the whole question of divinity of the Torah. It's not going to be kind of empirical, like logical, like we're trying to do today. It's going to be more of like an emotional angle. And we'll see if uh, if that resonates as well. But regardless, I think we can be comforted as believers in the legitimacy of Torah. We can be comforted to know that there are very strong and compelling logical proofs from all kinds of different points, all kinds of different angles. Like we said, to soften the subject, we would expect Torah to exist. Number one, the miracles of the Torah are very intriguing, very interesting, very noteworthy, very provocative. Sign of revelation, all the miracles that happened to the Jewish people, people themselves get the book. How does this happen if it's not true? The predictions of the Torah are uncannily clairvoyant. How does the Torah know all these things ahead of time? How does the Torah know all the things that it knows, unless indeed it is the handiwork of God. And again, we end off with questions for the heretic. We respect everyone. Everyone's allowed to have their opinion. But if we're going to be having this discussion, these are germane questions that the heretic must respond to, must react to. As always, my email address is rabbiwalbhb.com. Looking forward to next opportunity to discuss this very important subject with y'all.